I'm Jenny Galuzzo, co-founder of The Second Shift. Welcome to our podcast where we talk all things women, work, and well-being, how they intersect, our competing forces, and how to create and maintain personal and professional alignment in your life. Let's do this. At The Second Shift, we talk a lot amongst ourselves and with our clients a lot about workplace transformation. What are the foundational and structural elements that go into building the workplace of the future that are going to be helpful for women, for families, for inclusivity, so that when you're building something, it helps all of those people feel seen, feel heard, that you are able to bring your humanity to work and know that the place that you're spending so much of your time and your effort is a place that you feel that you are part of a community because that is ultimately what makes people grateful and want to stay at your business and keep working for you. Another woman who has spent the majority of her career thinking about this and doing something about it is Erica Keswin. She is an author. She is a workplace transformation and talent expert, and she's written three books. Her first book was called Bring Your Human to Work, and it was how to design a workplace that's good for business and good for people. It's about humanity and empathy at work and creating that environment so that People like going to work and you don't have a toxic culture. You have a really nice culture so that people are really happy to be part of it. The second book was Ritual's Roadmap. And I think that's a really cool one because it gives a lot of examples of specific ways that companies are building out onboarding rituals, ways in which you connect to each other and are doing it in a really smart and thoughtful way. And then Her latest book, The Retention Revolution, is about keeping your employees connected to your company. She outlines seven surprising ways that employees can be connected to a company, what you can do in management coming out of the pandemic and in a world that's increasingly flexible and hybrid, how you can create an environment where people have that stickiness to work, especially when so much of it is done virtually. So anyway, I'm going to let you listen to the episode instead of telling you everything that's happening. But this is something that we think about all the time. This is something that's top of the mind of our clients. A lot of the people that we talk to in in the business world, this is a lot of what Gina talks about within her part of our business. And when we're thinking about jobs and how to get more people jobs and what does the workplace look like and what is hybrid and what is flexible, blah, 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 blah. This is a conversation about that with somebody who is actually on the ground making change with some of the biggest companies in the world. So many people get to a level where and, and I, I think that they're sort of in our cohort where you become a manager and all of a sudden you have people that are reporting to you and you're in this like messy place where you have to advocate for yourself. You have a boss, you have all these people 
pushing and wanting things. And there's not a lot of empathy for managers who are caught in the middle. So I'm glad you're shining a light and helping people to figure out how do you help people become a good manager? How do you do your best and and lead with empathy? How do you do it? What's your advice? What is this course? So one of the things I think a lot about, there's a chapter in the book called being a human professional is not an oxymoron. And if we flash back to March of 2020, which I always say, I don't want to go back to that day or that month, but I don't want to also forget some of what we saw and how we felt. And many leaders were more human and some by default, some they had it in them. But if, you know, they have kids in the background, spouses opening the refrigerator, technology breaking down, dogs barking. And what I say now is that while we wouldn't want to go back to that time, what a strong manager is in this moment in 2023, 2024 and beyond is to continuing bringing some of that humanity as a leader. And a piece of that is checking in and saying to people, you know, Jenny, how are you really, really doing? Because three and a half years ago, we were asking that and many of us meant it. And we need to continue figuring out ways to do it. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I would say is the managers are often in the messy middle. I believe they're in the center and they are so, so critical in this moment for a number of reasons. But one is, you know, when the CEO of the company says, okay, everybody, we're going to go from two days back in the office to four, who's rolling it out and who's having to make it happen? It's the managers who are really on the front lines of this retention revolution And a second piece of that is when we think about, you know, managing multiple generations and Gen Z, you know, they have destigmatized mental health issues, which is amazing. But at the same time, managers need to understand how to deal with that when people come to them with issues that they've never had to deal with before. So to be a strong leader in this moment, we need to elevate the role. We need to celebrate the role. We need to provide resources. But if you're listening to this and you are that manager, and let's say you're not getting some of those resources, this is what I would say. This is like the million dollar question. And so here's the tidbit here. Number one, approach any of these things through a lens of vulnerability, if you can. Not everybody's as comfortable as others. But you know, if you're a manager, people assume that you have it all figured out, like you're a leader in the organization. And if you can share that maybe you don't have all the answers, a little vulnerability goes a long way. The second is lead with some empathy, saying to people, look, I know, Jenny, we've gone in the office, back home. This has changed. That has changed. You know, AI. I mean, there are so many changes right now. It's insane. So vulnerability, a little empathy to show that you understand. But the third thing is really the icing on the cake, which is approach these changes through the lens of experimentation. That we're walking around like this with our shoulders in our ears and everybody's on edge, especially around these topics. If you can, as a manager, share that, you know what, this may not be the end all be all and it probably isn't, that you're experimenting, it takes the temperature down. I really like that advice because I think about, you know, we've gone through this whole journey in the past few years, right? Where we were like, you bring your whole self to work. And we did, and we did that. And then we're trying to navigate now how we 
take a step back a little bit and, you know, the workplace and also the economic forces that are driving the economy right now are so hard. You know, everyone's hiring, everyone's firing, you know, and the people caught in the middle are the managers who have to deal and have coverage. And I think it's funny what you talk about being a human at work, and that is actually the title of one of your books. We had launched a platform called Let's Be Human. Oh, wow. It was literally launching the day that COVID hit. And it was in partnership with Unilever and Google, and it was all about parental leave. And it was taking a lot of the principles that you talk about because parental leave is an area where we do a lot of leave fill-ins. And the women in our network, like, it's a great opportunity. It's, you know, win, win, win all around for everybody, but it's so poorly executed. And there's so little empathy that comes in and it becomes transactional at a time when people are so emotionally vulnerable. So we created this whole thing where it was like a a program, a workshop, a dialogue for managers and employees to navigate this experience together. And then COVID happened. So, you know, and and we still do it and we've brought it back, but I think about it all the time. And we were talking to one of our clients. This is a very long-winded way of saying, we were talking to one of our clients that we have worked with on parental leave and it's a disaster in their organization. And it's like a really toxic culture where you know somebody's going out on leave and the finance department doesn't approve the leave or like somebody doing a fill-in until that person's already gone. So everybody's pissed. The manager's pissed. The team you left behind is pissed. The employee going on leave is, you know, going out with stress and coming back into a shit show. And it's like, it doesn't, it shouldn't be that way. How do you help override toxic culture when HR, people managers, legal, finance are really getting in the way of people who are trying to be human, vulnerable, and do all the right things. Look, it's got to start at the top. I mean, leaders need to walk the walk on this, whether it's toxic culture, whether it is, you know, work-life integration, you know, they say, okay, you can actually take vacation, yet they're working 24-7 when emailing you when you're on vacation. And I would say that if you're in a culture, obviously, when the, depending on the swings in the economy, it might be harder to leave. But you know, we know that it starts at the top and, you know, what is it? Shit trickles down or whatever that that saying is. It's going to be very hard to say that you are doing things, certain things aren't bringing your human to work if your leaders aren't modeling it. And interestingly, there was a study that came out fairly recently that found that, you know, your manager has a bigger impact on your mental health than your spouse. And so, the leader, it could be the CEO, but also I, you know, 80% of people leave managers. So, you know, A, you should think about this if you are a manager, B, the person that you work for, I mean, that's going to be the biggest correlation with how you show up and you can only change someone so much. What I recommend in my books, I focus on the science and stories of connection at work. So I share a lot of anecdotes and I share a lot of stories but I also share a lot of data. So if you have leaders that think this is the soft stuff, I would say the soft stuff is the hard stuff and the really important stuff, especially right now in this new world of work and retention revolution, you know, lead with data because there is an impact on the bottom line when you are more human at work. 
Yeah, they're, they're more successful companies. The one that I talked to yesterday was the company's a disaster. And it's like, well, I'm not surprised you're a disaster because look at how you handle one tiny thing, which is like somebody going out on maternity leave. And it's hard for big companies. And I find that sometimes there's a willingness and an ability to want to try something. And the execution of that thing is very difficult to implement. Do you find that as well? Like, they're people who want to buy in and they know they need to change, but actually making it happen is far trickier. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. That could also be giving them an excuse. I just believe where there's a will, there's a way. I do think though, some of them, maybe they don't have the training. I mean, I guess I'm curious, like what kinds of things, like, can you give an example of, you know, what's something where you think they want to change, but they can't? So for example, we will go in and talk to a business about flexibility and you are a big proponent in flexibility, not just for senior level, for flexibility for everybody. And that that is on a, on like really a person to person basis. And you can't just have like the senior level off golfing and everybody else expected to come into the workforce. And I do think that there are a lot of businesses that are trying to adapt to have a more fluid workforce. but they don't really want to change the mindset on what the expectation is on like your hours and when people are coming into work and what that means and what hours you're working. It's like a weird mindset shift that people get stuck in, even if they maybe want to do it and have really good intentions. So I'd say part of it is probably a generational thing and there's out of sight, out of mind, but even the people that are starting to buy in on it, it is not rocket science but it doesn't make it easy. And this takes work. So if you are going to let people have flexibility, which as you said, I am a proponent of, you have to rethink the way that you measure performance. You can't monitor performance by walking around if people aren't in the office every day. You need to rethink how am I measuring performance? Yes, there's sales jobs and you can do it based on widgets, but what about all these roles? And it's doable, but someone has to decide that it's important enough to put thinking around it because just swiping a badge and coming in to an office, yes, you know, they're sitting there in an office, but you also don't know if they're actually working. And so there's the mindset shift. There's people are lazy. It just seems like so much work, but I believe that it is worth it because Not many companies can pull off asking people to come in five days in the office. It's it's very, very tricky. And so where there's a will, there's a way. In the book, there are tons of examples of jobs that, you know, a a sales associate at Neiman Marcus who can work a couple of hours a week at home and have some agency over his or her schedule. It can't be four days a week. I mean, I believe that when we think about these things, they need to, we need to think about it through the lens of equity, but it's not all going to be equal because not everybody can work from home at the same time, which is why if you're listening to this and you're a leader, it's a lot to manage. It is a lot to manage and it's not, and not all jobs are equitable either. Some jobs require somebody to be there. You work in a restaurant you don't have the flexibility to work from home. You work the restaurant hours. And in some ways, it's like an opt-in, right? You know what you're getting when you're signing on to work in retail or work in a restaurant or work in 
a big bank that requires somebody to be there five days a week. It is an opt-in environment and not all jobs are going to be equal. But at the same time, you have to look at your employees laterally in that environment and try to create a situation where there is some semblance of flexibility for all of the different people based on their needs. And that's exhausting for a manager. I could understand why they would be. Well, I wouldn't say it's always based on their needs because it's also based on, it's also based on the business needs. But what I say to people is like, let's say we're coming in the office Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, that doesn't get rid of approaching it through the lens of humanity, which is, okay, I know Wednesday is the day in the office, but I have a doctor's appointment and two parent-teacher conferences, and I live in New Jersey, and I'm driving into the city, that just doesn't make sense for me personally or for the business to waste that time. At the same time, if, if I notice as a manager that that's happening with one of my employees every Wednesday for six weeks, you know, I think we might need to have a conversation. So I think people get so nervous now with back to office or changing these things or, or implementing you know, new systems My hope is that what the pandemic taught us is that approaching any of this through the lens of humanity ends up being better for everybody. What are some of the success cases that you've seen that you really like to highlight where people have done a good job either implementing flexibility or bringing humanity, really being change agents for managers even? So what I would say is um, this shows my my age, my Gen X um, advanced age. But as a kid, I watched The Love Boat. And on The Love Boat, we had somebody named Julie McCoy, who was the cruise director. And so people will say to me, you know, how many days of the week coming in is, is the right number? I don't subscribe to that. So much of it depends on the company, the industry. I mean, one company tried to make a three-day back-in-the-office plan, and then they realized that 30% of the people had moved during the pandemic. So they either need to make people move back or shift whatever this strategy is. So the best practice examples that I see run the gamut of how many days in the office, but number one, they curate connection and they do it intentionally. On the days that people are in the office, they create moments where people come together because what you don't want is to have all the people commuting into the office and having some people not there and doing the exact same kind of work you could have been doing from home, which leads to what I call the recipe for resentment. So, Mm. you know, I can give two extremes. I mean, I have one company that they come in three days a week and you know, Wednesdays, everybody's in, they have a moment where they have an hour on Wednesdays where it's a town hall, or they have a moment where everybody does learning and development, which is connected to their values. On one of the other days, people have one-on-ones. On the third day, there's usually a, a meeting by team. So they have these anchor points on these days. So people don't feel like it's a quote unquote waste coming in. You're not bonding and eating together all day long, but there are these moments where where you're doing things in person that make more sense when you are together. The other end of the spectrum is I was just kicking off a big event at Microsoft with one of their teams. They have 250 people. They have some people in Seattle, but plenty of people that live in other places. And they have what's called team week twice a year for a full week. Now, of course, they're chatting and they're getting together on and off in between that time. But the team week, I kicked it off for their fall, they have fall and spring. You know, if you spend five days with somebody and you really connect with them and get to know them, you can live off of 
those relationships that you've built for a long time to come. And again, it's not that they're not seeing anybody for six months, but the data shows that the relationships that you build and the bonding, they volunteer together, they do strategy work and whiteboards that you know, you build trust and you really build deep connections that, and we all can relate to this. Once you've met someone in person, the way that you communicate digitally completely changes. I love this because it's, it's almost like flipping the idea of work because work used to be, you went into an office and you sat there and you did your thing and you maybe had lunch with somebody and then you went home, but like you really, there was something special about work. It was just work. And now you can work from home but you're trying to make work be special when you're there to find like, I think I read you, you said it's like making your on-site work feel like what used to be an offsite. A hundred percent. On-sites are the new offsite. I wrote yeah. an article in, in Harvard Business Review. About I thought that it. was a great idea. Yeah. But here's the other thing. I just gave it, I had a meeting this morning at a company and I said to them, I was like, guys, somebody goes back to Julie McCoy and the cruise director This will not happen. I mean, the cheesy as it sounds, left to our own devices, we're not connecting. We're going to miss each other. Somebody said to me, well, you know, this office was designed that there's this amazing, you know, cafe or whatever, and everybody has to walk through it. I said, yeah, but that's different than stopping and having a coffee. I could walk through it and grab a coffee and be on my way to my office and shut the door for the rest of the day. So you know, somebody needs to say, you know, there's some committee, whether it's the culture committee, whether it's maybe it rotates, but what are opportunities where we can all stop what we're doing during the day, like the seventh inning stretch in a baseball game and meet in this beautiful coffee area in our office and say hello. And then we know what happens. We end up And that's why it leads to productivity because it's like, oh, Jenny, I was going to email you, but now I don't have to. And oh, by the way, did you see this? And Things just happen, right? Good things happen when people connect. I absolutely agree with that. And I've even seen that with my team as small as we are when we get everything done that needs to get done, but there's some of the excitement and the spice that's not there when you're not together. The, you know, ideating and the big picture thinking. And so creating opportunity to do that, whether it's like, okay, we're going to have lunch, we're going to go get foot massages and then sit and talk. We create opportunities so that we can be together. And it's not just like we're on our computers doing our daily work, but we're just next to each other, which is what it used to be. We would just spend all day sitting next to each other, but doing stuff on our computers. Now it has to be like incredibly intentional in the time that we have because we can get everything done on our own now. We've proven that. And it's great because it makes it you have to put the effort in to make it special when you're together. So that way we are all trying to get something out of that experience. Yeah. And I would, all, I would also just add it's, it's special, but that doesn't mean it has to cost a lot of money. It doesn't always have to be in person. I have a great example from my rituals book from you to me, where they have something called deal hour once a month for an hour, drop everything and learn. And, you know, you can bring in a speaker, you could have a book club, or you could say to all your employees on the third Wednesday of every month at three o'clock, everybody drops whatever they're doing to learn. You could, you could watch YouTube, you could take a course, you know, online, you could teach, you could do literally whatever you want. And if that's a company value, and we know that right now, especially with Gen Z, if we don't help people grow and develop up, down and sideways, they're going to leave and find somewhere where they can, that again, this is an opportunity. So if you do something like this, 
the next day or the next week, if you're a manager, you bring all the people together and you on your team and say, okay, what did everybody learn this week at deal hour? Cost nothing. So do you recommend that the Julie, the cruise director, is there, are you seeing that companies are implementing that as like a person whose job it is to do that? Is it at the manager level? How does that work where you're creating that space? Like we want to do this, but how do you make it happen? Yeah. I have a lot of different examples in the, in the book, the retention revolution. And I have, there's a chapter on flexibility. That's sort of where it shows up. Also a chapter on meeting. I talk about it a little there. A few examples though are greenhouse software has literally as their leases become available, some of them they're not re-upping. But what I love about this is that they're taking that money and instead of sticking it in the bank and like saving it for a rainy day, they are actually investing it in a team of people whose job it is, is to create these opportunities for connection. And they're investing people if they need to travel to get to certain events. And so you can't sort of have it both ways that if you're not going to have offices or you're not going to be in the office as much and you're going to shrink your footprint, then you need to put the money somewhere else. So Greenhouse these has these events called Gather at, you know, gather at Austin, gather at San Francisco, and they do them in these cool places. They have a couple of different people. And it's not just we all show up in a room. It is we show up, they curate these conversations, they help people get to know on a much deeper level, they bring their vulnerability. You know, it may not be for everyone and it's not mandated, but then the feedback that they get is so strong that people want to come to the next one. So in that case, it's either someone's job or it's a part of someone's job. You know, it can't just be, you know, the person that volunteers because they're good at like planning the parties, which as you know, given your world stereotypically goes to the women, which is infuriating. So there's other companies that have, you know, a committee, sort of this culture committee, and it's actually seen as you you have to apply LinkedIn, you have to apply to be one of their culture champions. And you know, it's a big deal and you get to go to a big offsite and they pay for you to travel to get there to be part of this amazing community to help build the culture. So there's a lot of different ways to do it. It just can't be an afterthought and it needs to be seen as part of someone's job, not the thing that they do at 10 o'clock after they've done everything else. And not the invisible labor. No, visible labor, visible labor. Let's scream from the rafters who does it and who does it well and recognize them because here's the thing, like, and this is where it impacts your bottom line. Like if you are hybrid and you're not seeing people and no one's curating connection and, you know, you don't feel connected to your company and I run into you at a cocktail party next month at Christmas and I offer you a job at my company, you're like, yeah, maybe I'll come. You know, I don't, I don't feel so connected here anyway. That's the retention aspect of it. You've already invested a lot of money in these employees. I mean, I think about that all the time when women that we work with will ask for flexibility or they'll ask for uh, somebody to fill in their parental leave. Uh, And you're like, you've spent so much money on this person already. Why would you not try to make something beneficial for both sides happen? So they don't leave because that costs money. There is a business case for flexibility, for helping your employees to stay engaged, to retain your employees. And it's it's very short-sighted of businesses who aren't willing to adapt in this time. Do you feel positive 
about the way that the workforce and like workforce transformation is going. Because a lot of the women will be like, what's going on? What's happening in the world? What do we need to know about like where we're going in the workforce? Yes, I would say I feel positive. I feel that there's all of this amazing technology. I mean, you and I are connecting right now and we're using a platform and, and we have this great technology and we saw that it worked during the pandemic, but I do see the pendulum again swinging back a bit. I talk about if we don't find the sweet spot where we leverage technology for all of its greatness, but also put that technology in its place, which is a way sometimes, somehow, I think we're going to have a problem. And I think we do have a problem in terms of loneliness and isolation. And so I feel really positive because technology can do amazing things. I feel positive because the pandemic showed us that we don't have to be in the office five to seven days a week, 24 seven. And we have to really think about the interconnection of so many different things. And so I think it's harder to do well, but if we do take the time to be intentional about all these things we've talked about, I think the opportunities are unbelievable. I love that. For women and especially for women. Yeah, you have, um, yeah, that was yeah. going to relate it back to women because you you speak directly to women and how the workforce is helping them or, you know, can be used to benefit women. And how do you see that going? I think there are more, in the beginning of the pandemic, we saw, I mean, women just left in droves and there were so many articles, like people were really wondering, was this going to be the end of so many women in the workplace who had kids, the kids were home from school and with men, even with many of my friends, well, who quit their job to make the, put the kids on the zoom school. Many times it was the women. So now we're three and a half years later and I mean, the, now the number of women in the workplace, especially with young kids is, you know, you're the expert, you'd probably know better numbers than I have, but it's through the roof and it's amazing that they're back. And this is the part that's linked to what's exciting about the future of work is that let's say we have flexibility at work and I take advantage of it. And I'm working at home a couple of days and my husband goes in either because I kick him out because he's annoying me at home or like he's just going in and doesn't want to deal with certain things. If we don't look at some of the systems in terms of how do projects get given out? If projects only get given out by when we bump into somebody at the water cooler, that's going to be a problem for a lot of the women that are taking more advantage of the flexibility because proximity bias is real. And so I think the flexibility is amazing, but we just, again, need to think about how it interfaces with how projects get given out, how performance is measured, you know, and how people lead. So all of these things that are opportunities are also challenges if we only look at one part of the puzzle. And I think if you read a lot of the headlines, you're seeing it shown in a very negative way where what I like about what you do and your writing and your books is that it's very much reframing, taking this as an opportunity to grow, to learn, to morph, to transform into a better workforce that positively affects everyone, not only women, not only families, everybody across the board. So thank you for taking the time and using your expertise to talk to us, but also to write these books and change the workplace and the culture for everybody. Well, thank you. And thank you for what you do 
because it is so important. And to your point, I mean, it's just that much more important now, you know, as these pendulums swing and as we see all these different trends for women in the workforce and women as leaders, got to make sure that we focus on all of this because while we say, oh, flexibility is so great, I don't want to look back, you know, five years from now and say, huh, I wish I had looked at that a little bit more closely because while the flexibility was great and many of the women took advantage of it, it's actually taken them back 20 years in their careers. And I think without making sure that we rethink some of the systems, I think that, that we, we just need to keep our eye on it. And again, make it a, make it a positive and not a negative. Well, I'm very glad to know that you are out there talking to all these businesses and doing that and making sure that no one's taking their eye off the prize and keeping this in the focus of the transformation that's happening in the world today. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Erica. You You too. Bye. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. For more, you can follow along at thesecondshift.com. Please rate, review, subscribe, and help us make work work for you and for all women.